Well, the first thing I would like to say is Merry Christmas to all of you, to Cornerstone, to Piqua Baptist Church. If you're new, I'm Jamie, and I am one of the pastors around here. Today, it is my honor and my privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, don't sweat it. There's one in the pew in front of you. And if you grab one of the black Bibles, you'll find our reading today, beginning on, on page something, 857 of the black Bible, 8, 857. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and just take that black one. You're not stealing. That is a Christmas gift, this congregation, to you. So take that Bible home and read it. Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. I'll read the passage. We'll read down to verse 7. And then I'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together. And then we'll work our way through these verses one at a time. And uh, it'll take us probably around 30 minutes or so to work our way through this passage. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you come now and help us to understand this word? We understand that we, without your spirit, cannot possibly hope to understand what it is that we are reading. And so we ask humbly that you would send your Holy Spirit and give us grace to hear the word of the Lord this morning. Lord, will you write the truth of this passage upon our hearts? Through it, produce fruit for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. God's people said, amen. Many followers considered him to be a god. He was called the savior of the whole world. An ancient inscription said that his birthday signaled good news for the world. His divine Father gave him rule over everything. He met all the needs of his people, bringing peace to earth. He brought order and harmony and good to all. His followers offered him sacrifices and wrote hymns about him. His name was Gaius Octavian the great-nephew of Julius Caesar. 
He was adopted by his great uncle and set to inherit the great Roman Empire. After Julius Caesar was murdered, Octavian and Mark Antony and another fella assumed power in Rome, and they ruled Rome together. But power got the best of them, and Octavian and Mark Antony ousted the other guy. And now there were two ruling over the Roman Empire. The relations between the two weren't great. Mark Antony married Octavian's sister, and that seemed to smooth things over for a little bit until they fell out of favor again. When it was discovered that Mark Antony had been carrying on an affair with an Egyptian woman by the name of Cleopatra. And so they went to war. Mark Antony sided with his mistress and the Egyptians. And Octavian, with the great Roman, Roman military might behind him, soundly defeated Egypt and Mark Antony. And then Mark Antony and his girlfriend Cleopatra retreated to Egypt and killed themselves, as one does. And now there was one ruling the Roman Empire. Octavian became emperor and took the divine title of Augustus, as in Caesar Augustus. He later commemorated his great victory over Egypt in the summer month, the eighth summer month, renaming it after himself, the month we call August. Caesar Augustus used his military strength and his political brilliance to bring peace to the Roman Empire. Historians call this time in history Pax Romana. He built massive road systems and opened up trade and brought great wealth into the empire. And here in the Gospel of Luke, Caesar Augustus is counting his money. He's issued a decree of registration, a census, for the purpose of taxation. And as we're about to see, the most powerful man in the world is being used as a pawn in the hand of Almighty God in order to make sure that His Son, the true Savior of the whole world, would be born in a little town called Bethlehem in fulfillment of a promise that He made to His people 700 years ago. Here's the big idea this morning. The Lord humbles the proud, exalts His Son in the salvation of His people. Celebrate Him this Christmas. The Lord humbles the proud and exalts His Son in the salvation of His people. Celebrate Him this Christmas. We'll unpack this text in three parts. First, we'll look again at verses 1 to 3 where we will see the way of kings in the hand of God. And then we'll look at verses 4 and 5 where we'll see the way of men in the hands of God. And then finally, in verses 6 and 7, we'll see the way of God in salvation of His people. So if you would look again at verses 1 to 3 
We read, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, in terms of power and strength, it's hard to get any bigger than an imperial decree over the whole world. All the world in in this verse is a literary device, which just basically means everyone who is everyone, everyone who matters. Caesar Augustus has the power to tell the whole world what to do. It's a massive flex. The most powerful man in the world wants to know your name and your address. Not so that he can send you Christmas cards, mind you, but so that he can get his money from you. Politicians will politic. Taxation is a funny thing when you think about it. I mean, you strike an agreement with an individual that in exchange for your time and your talents, your abilities, they will give you money. They pay you a wage for your service, and the government says, some of that is mine. And then you take the money that you earned, and you go and you buy the things that you need in order to live, and the government says, some of that is mine. And then you wisely invest what's left over, and it makes you a little bit more money, and the government says to you then, some of that is mine. And here's the thing. You can't cancel your subscription to this service. So don't even try, because if you do try, the government will send police to your door who you pay for with your tax dollars, and they will put you in a cage until you serve your time, and they will let you out, and you still have to pay, but with interest. Taxation is an extension of power, and sometimes citizens don't like when government flexes in this way, and they pour tea into harbors and start wars and stuff. Luke tells us that this registration happens when Quirinius is governor of Syria. Judea is a region inside of Syria this this time, and Quirinius, Quirinius is the governor of this area. He's a military guy. He's Caesar's guy that he's been entrusted to take the census of Syria. And Caesar needed a wise man with a gentle but firm hand to collect information. Because Palestine, in those days, didn't have a very good history with Rome telling them what to do, the Maccabees and whatnot. But this was not the time for revolution or revolt. And so in verse 3, we're told that everyone goes to be registered, each one to their own home town. And for the Jewish people, this was a rather big deal. Their origins were a big deal. Every now and again, they would have to travel home, just like we do at Christmas, and they would have to register so that records could be kept of who's who. It was sort of like an ancient version of Ancestry.com. Every Jew is a part of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and each tribe was allocated a certain part of the promised land which God had given to them. And even though the Jewish people were not an independent country at the time, Rome was overcharged of them, 
They looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come and he would set up his kingdom on the earth and he would bring forth God's law and that he would restore the land to God's covenant people. And so they needed to know who was who so that they would know who owned which part of the land. To Caesar, a census by imperial decree is is a flex. It's an expression of his power. To Joseph and to Mary, it's a reminder they're not in power. They're being forced to travel. And as we'll see in a moment, the conditions are not ideal. She's big pregnant. But they have no choice. It is imperial decree. Now there's a lot of talk today about government power in the aftermath of a pandemic and economic lockdowns and stimulus and vaccines and whatnot. People respond to power in different ways. To avoid the wrong person being in power, they work hard to put the right person in power. And they make sure that their side has more power than the other side, so they stay in power. That's one way people deal with power. Another way that people respond to power is to assert that the only power that matters is the power of the individual. And so they are wary of any organizational structure of power. And there's talk of dismantling power systems and defunding them. But you see, the Christian understands from texts like this one that imperial decree, no matter who it comes from, is subservient to divine decree. It is God who controls world events. The decree of Caesar is subject to the decree of providence. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The way of kings in the hand of God. If Rome had an organizational structure chart like you sometimes have at work, where Caesar Augustus would be at the top, Joseph and Mary would be many, many levels down towards the bottom. They're traveling in less than ideal conditions without a choice. But few understood it at the time. But every single person on that organizational chart and every decision by every single person on that organizational chart is being directed along exactly as God has willed. Caesar may be counting his money, but God is keeping his promises, which is what we see in verses 4 and 5. Let's read it again. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, there's been a problem in Luke chapter 1 that a lot of us modern readers aren't likely to pick up on. 
And this problem has to do with Old Testament prophecy and a little bit of geography. And we're most of us Americans, and we're really, really bad at geography. And so we need some help sometimes. I mentioned it before, but God had promised 700 years prior to these events in Luke 2 that the Messiah, the ruler of Israel, was to be born in the city of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And that's a problem. Because Joseph and Mary don't live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth, 70 miles away. So how is it that a virgin teenager from Nazareth is to give birth to the Jewish Messiah who is to be born in Bethlehem, 70 miles away? Two words, imperial decree. The way of men in the hands of God. It seems that Luke's point here is to show us that the most powerful man in the earth is being used by God without us even knowing it. And that Joseph and Mary, in their obligatory and potentially dangerous journey, are being used by God without their even knowing it. Imperial decree from the most powerful man in the world who didn't know or recognize or worship God is being used by God to make sure that every detail of his divine plan will come together exactly as he has planned it in fulfillment of a long-forgotten promise that he made to his people through the mouth of an obscure prophet that few remember. Many of us have a hard time even finding the book of Micah in the Bible. Few of us have any idea of what, what kind of man he was, when he lived, what his ministry was about, what he said, and yet God has not forgotten. Not one letter of one word has God forgotten. But there's more. This journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem it's taking place somewhere around 4 to 6 B.C. There's no public news radio. There's no postal service to send you the census packet. How long do you suppose it took to organize a census of the whole known world in the first century B.C.? Months at least, perhaps even years. This census was likely in the works and in the mind of Caesar Augustus long before the angel came to Mary and announced the coming of the Messiah. The sheer number of people and events that have to take place exactly right in order for this no-name virgin to get to Bethlehem and give birth to her son boggles the mind. There's only one explanation for how this could have worked, 
and it is that God had his providential hand on this situation. The way of men in the hands of God. And this is what Luke wants us to see. There are no accidents. There are no incidentals. In God's plan of salvation, nothing is left to chance. Every molecule in the universe is moved along by divine decree. From the flexing of governments to the travel plans of peasants. You see, God is so committed to the demonstration of the glory of His grace that He has orchestrated 10,000 by 10,000 seemingly random and inconsequential events to keep a single promise that He made to His people. Jesus put it like this, But truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Friend, nothing is more certain than the Word of God. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of our God stands forever. You can stake your life on the words in this book. And friend, you must. Nothing in your life is accidental or incidental. At no point in your life has God lost control. Not over a single thing. Let's keep reading verses 6 to 7, which is where we'll end our time together. While they were there in Nazareth, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The word inn from verse 7 is probably a reference to either a public shelter house or most likely it's a reference to a guest room in a home. It's not an inn like we think of an inn, like a holiday inn. Those existed in those days, and and those appear in the Gospel of Luke. It's a different word. Houses in those days were usually made up of a few rooms, but not much more. The main room is where people lived and ate and slept. Another room was uh, for the animals. It was a stable of of, of a sort. And then another room would be reserved for guests. Mary and Joseph come into Nazareth, a small town. I'm sorry, come into Bethlehem, a very small town. And they probably have some relatives there. But all of the guest rooms are full. And so they may have had to sleep and stay in the stable. And the time came for Jesus to be born in the stable with the animals. So the medical professionals here are probably having some anxiety, thinking about a woman giving birth in a place where animals live. And I'm with you. I mean, some of you will go to the urgent care if you stub your toe, but then you decide, I'm going to give birth to my baby at home in my bathtub. And I recognize that, uh, you know, home birth is how it's been done for most of human history, and that's, that, that's good. Call me crazy. I prefer hospital with trained professionals 
to give birth to children. Not a family that my, not a room that my family uses to go to the bathroom in. Um, but in verse 7, we read what has now become a precious, precious image to us this time of year. It's one of those visuals that we love. That Jesus is born and his mother wraps him in swaddling clothes and lays him in a manger because there's no place for them in the inn. The Virgin Mary gives birth to Jesus, her firstborn son, and wraps him in strips of cloth and lays him in a manger, the feeding trough for animals. And here we behold the true wonder of Christmas. That God the Son, infinite, uncreated, of limitless power, condescends. Born a human child without control over his extremities. His teenage mother has to wrap him in strips of cloth to keep his arms and his legs together and to keep him warm. The one who hung the stars in the sky can't even scratch his own itches. The one who sustains every molecule in the universe can't keep himself warm or even feed himself. Behold the wonder of Christmas. I can't say it better than the Puritan Jonathan Edwards who wrote about this wonder. He said, There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension. Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great and high above all. He's higher than the kings of the earth, for he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is so high that he's infinitely above any need of us, beyond our reach, that we cannot be profitable to him, and above our conceptions that we cannot comprehend him. He is sovereign Lord of all. He rules over the whole universe and does whatever pleases Him. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect. His power is infinite. And none can resist Him. And yet, He is one of infinite condescension. None are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take gracious Notice of them. He condescends not only to the angels, humbling himself to behold the things that are done in heaven, but he also condescends to such poor creatures as men. Such as are commonly despised by their fellow creatures, Christ does not despise. His condescension is sufficient to take gracious notice of the most unworthy, sinful creatures that have no good deservings and those that have infinite ill deservings. Close quote. God has ordered the way of kings and the way of men to show the way of God in saving his people. This is the way of God. Jesus Christ, in infinite highness, is submitting himself to infinite condescension to meet with the lowest and the vilest and the poor 
God the Son came to save sinners from their sin. God the Son will be crushed, bearing the guilt and the shame of sinners like us on His sinless body. He will suffer God's wrath for their sin. He will die their death as a sentence for their sin. In the same way that His mother wrapped Him in strips of cloth and laid Him in a manger, He will be wrapped again in strips of linen laid in a grave. But three days later, God will raise Him from the dead and offers to all who turn to Him in faith forgiveness and righteousness before Him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you came to church. There's something that you need to know. That in the same way that God orchestrated 10,000 by 10,000 seemingly random events to keep one single promise He made to His people, that same God has ordered every event to get you here in this place today. And in His love, He has willed to speak to you about His Son, Jesus. Perhaps for the first time. Perhaps for the 50th time. But He's offering to you mercy. That when you turn to Jesus in faith, confessing your sin, confessing that He is Lord, God has promised that He will forgive you and cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness. Don't go through Christmas this year still in your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Caesar Augustus boasted that when he found Rome, it was in brick. But when he left Rome, it was in marble. And in his day, many believed he was a god. But you know, you're not likely to meet anyone alive today who thinks that. However, you can go about anywhere in this world and you're likely to find many, many, many people who believe that that baby laid in that manger is the one true God. For about 50 bucks, you can book a guided tour of Rome and see what's left of the legacy of Caesar Augustus. And for a couple hours every Sunday morning, you can see the living legacy of Jesus Christ. There's no one alive today who has met Caesar Augustus. But there are millions upon millions alive today who have met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Many in this room have met Him. Many in this room know Him. This is God's way. To humble the proud. To exalt His Son in salvation of His people. Let's celebrate Him together this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of the way that You have worked history, the way that You have carried us along, that almost everything in our lives has been out of our control. And the things that are in our control, we've screwed them all up. 
And you've been there all along to bring us to Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, who condescended, such as he has, to be made like us in every way in order to save us from our sin. It is a gift we cannot repay, but it is a gift that we celebrate every Lord's Day morning, and especially so on those Lord's Days when we get to watch someone be baptized. So we give you our lives, serving your purpose on this earth in whatever way you would permit us. And Lord, would you see it fit but to make much of Jesus in our lives this week as we celebrate Christmas, to keep him before us always. We must confess, Father, that we have played Caesar Augustus in our own life. We have flexed our own power. And Lord, we shudder to think how often we have cast your commandments aside and done things our way. Lord, please forgive us. We know that we have no right to ask you for this grace, but you give it all the same through Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Your assurance of pardon this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where we read, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Please stand for our final song. Well, the ladies are going to lead us.